Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for the imbalance history of rock and roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this time round, buddy, somebody that we've talked about incessantly during the years we've been doing this podcast. Whenever we've talked about a progenitor and who they've influenced, we've almost always mentioned Janis Joplin. And this week, we finally get to focus on her on the podcast. Her voice, one of the greatest of all time the way she sang with emotion you felt her pain to the core of your soul you felt the happiness when it was there to the core of your soul but whatever it was she wanted you to feel that she was feeling you felt it with her you were along for the ride whether you wanted to be or not she had that kind of voice When she went to the well to get water, she drew from Bessie Smith and all of the women who came before her. In fact, when she found out that Bessie didn't have a headstone, she found out who the person was that was in charge of it, just sent them the check, blind faith if you will, and then later they did construct the Bessie Smith headstone at her grave. It had barely been marked. And she had had such a big influence on Janice that I guess she felt it was her obligation. Everybody's trying to work out who's all the But we're getting ahead of ourselves there, as we often do here at the beginning of the podcast, Marcus. Uh, as always, we are sponsored by our good friends at Boldfoot Socks at boldfoot.com. And by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Janice Joplin started life in Port Arthur, Texas. Mom and dad were busy. Mom was a registrar at the local business college. Dad worked for Texaco. And she had siblings, by all accounts. A good Christian family there in Port Arthur. But young Janice, oh yeah, she had those albums, you know, Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith. She loved Lead Belly. And that's what made her want to sing. And when you listen to her voice, even in the early recordings of it, you can hear those artists influencing heavily everything about her tone, the way she sings, the way she feels it. Oh, Blackberry, 
Not a whole lot is made of her time in Port Arthur. We know that she got a lot of shit when she was in school. She was bullied to the nth degree. And in our current time, Marcus, you know that shit wasn't going to fly. The things they said to her because she wouldn't repudiate black singers and stuff like that. Let's just leave it there. Yeah, the names that they threw at her were awful. She didn't fit that Texas suburban mold by any means. Total free thinker and really wanted to do things her way and live life her way. And so, of course, she was bullied for it. I guess Janice felt like if she tried college, something different, that maybe things would improve, right? Not completing her college studies because, frankly, I think she found that she had other things she'd rather be doing. She was playing local coffee shops and little bars and stuff in Texas and singing with her band and doing stuff like that. But she was also picked on again in college for being different. And Mm. that was something that... I think that was something that really wore her out in Texas. And she was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. She was once cruelly named the ugliest man on campus. If you get the drift of how fucked up this was. But one of the earliest articles about her is from those days. And they cited she often walked barefoot about campus in her Levi's with her auto heart playing music everywhere she went. So her identity was already being forged there in the middle of all that bullshit. And as often will happen in a situation like that, like-minded freaks and nerds all gather together and the gang at the uh, campus paper, the Texas Ranger, were that bunch. And Gilbert Shelton, who she met then, was a cartoonist and later became... Uh, one of the Freak Brothers. Talk about your underground influences early on, right? <laughs> but there was no fucking way she was staying in Texas. You put it perfectly, pal. Now, she and her friend Chet Helms had heard about everything that was going on in the hate in San Francisco, so they went right to the middle of it and hitchhiked their way to San Francisco. You know, back then, it wasn't so dangerous to hitchhike because my father a few years before they did that hitchhiked from denver to new york city so it was one of those things that kids were doing without fear without danger i know because when i was a kid in college i had no problem with getting the thumb out there and getting where i had to go when i didn't have wheels under me so it's part of life back then so when they finally arrive they go right to the heart of it And Janice ends up living in an apartment, and I'll find the address, uh, what, three doors, four doors from the intersection of Haight and Ashbury? Yeah, she was pretty much right there. Now, at this point, we're going to leave Golden Gate Park to go into and take a slight sojourn through the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. This is the new avant-garde left bank area of San Francisco, which has evolved or developed over the past number of years. In fact, uh, I would say that the last 18 months has seen a tremendous increase of the uh, 
so-called hippies who have uh, invaded and lived in this area. I saw the address in, I think it was the 2020 documentary when uh, the one of the narrators was uh, standing there, and I just can't remember it. It looked pretty normal by then, but back in the day, man, it was the center of the hippie freaking universe, man. Welcome to San Francisco. She gets there, and shortly after that, she meets a guy named Yorma Kalkinen. Now, this is 1963-64, well before either of them would meet the bands that they would become a part of, Kalkinen with the airplane and she with Big Brother and the holding company. But they set up a crude recording with Yorma's wife playing the typewriter in the background, or maybe she was just regularly typing and it just happened to be on while they were doing the tape they were doing. You know, it wasn't exactly high tech. And you may wonder, Marcus, why was Yorma's wife playing the typewriter? And it's because they recorded it at their house. It was that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> June 25th, 1964, they recorded a few songs. Trouble in Mind, Long Black Train, which is really good on the tape, by the way. It comes out. Her take on Kansas City Blues with Yorma playing, sweet. And it's a legendary take of Hesitation Blues, one of the favorites of all of those spiritual blues kind of influenced people. You know what I'm talking about? Yep, that's uh, W.C. Handy. Nobody knows you when you're down and out, which would be a recurring theme. I believe they did that on a couple different live albums with Big Brother and Solo. And we've talked about the Bessie Smith version. If anybody could do Bessie Smith justice, it was Janis Joplin. I'm sure when Janis came along that there were a lot of the old Bessie fans who were still alive who were sitting there going, damn, never thought I'd hear that sound coming out of a white girl right? What it really is, is a look in on both she and Yorma at that time, before they both got busy doing what they were going to do to change the rock and roll world. Here's the spirit of 65, because we're going to be talking about the summer of love in 67, right? Coming up on a future episode. But her friends threw her a bus fare party so she could make it back to Texas, which she wanted to do. She'd been partying pretty hard, and her family noted that when she got home, she was really thin and gaunt. And being home, she was able to avoid the normal haunts, the drugs and the alcohol and the lifestyle. But she got to singing, and once you get it in you, you don't get it out. In the school, it didn't take. She did a performance for Mance Lipscomb, Texas bluesman who needed some help, started to get her a name. And then she met, what was his name? Peter de Blanc. Yeah, the fact that her relationship survived long distance, being that 
she was pretty wild and pretty free and uh, had alcohol and uh, methamphetamine issues. It was pretty impressive. And I guess Peter dug her, but I'm sure with her past of bullying and harassment, she was probably pretty leery. Well, he went to Texas, asked for her hand in marriage, and shortly thereafter ended the engagement. He traveled a lot, too. And I guess he realized that two people traveling in separate circles might not work out anyway. And speaking of not working out, there's another thing that didn't work out, you know, like being home in Port Arthur, you know? Yeah. Not really her thing, right? True. Fortunately, though, she met this guy named Bernard Giarratano. He was a psychiatric social worker, and he started to help her to figure out that she could be her and successful without the drugs and alcohol. I just don't think whatever he taught her took. Put it all together, man. And don't you think that an escape from Port Arthur back to San Francisco or somewhere else was almost inevitable from the beginning? There's no doubt she wasn't going to stay in Port Arthur, Texas. The experiences she had in the past with the cruelty from the other kids in town, this was a short stint for her to figure out what she was going to do and for her to get back on track, which was what she had fully intended to do. Things had changed in the hate when she got back, and one of her friends said she looked like Texas. And I always think of... Uh, the kid on uh, Young Sheldon's mom, you know, on CBS, that Texas mom look from that era. Mother. Yes? Is it okay if I use a knife to butter my toast, or are you worried I'll do something crazy with it? You can butter your own toast. Oh, good. You see the toast, too. I was afraid I was imagining it. Sheldon? All right, that's enough. What's going on? Nothing's going on. Everything's fine. I'll tell you later. My mother believes I'm mentally unstable. And since there's a genetic component and I'm her child, I suppose it's possible. She got right back into the swing of things, though. She hooked up with Chad again, you know, about replugging into what was going on. And he was the one who told her to get with Big Brother. And he was the one who told them that they should bring her in. Now, there's an interesting dynamic in this whole thing. She figured, yeah, I'm a good match for this band. After they met and everything, she kind of knew who they were already. It was kind of a thing already in the scene. They were one of the big four bands. Some of the members of the band, though, felt they were doing her a favor by bringing her in. It's a whole different era for women in the business, let's just say that. But that wasn't uncommon, as we've learned, as we've done this podcast. One of the things we're not really crazy to discover, but it was true. The way women were treated as second-class citizens or third-class citizens in this business was or an afterthought. Yeah, or even an after, yeah. afterthought and just completely not respected. Very disappointing. And had she been respected, I think she might have survived and she may have done some pretty incredible things moving forward. Sit there.
Like in that 2020 piece, Little Girl Blue is pretty much the image I'm getting of her struggling against what the world sees and what they say. Instead of listening to her own heart, maybe she just wasn't strong enough. Or she was so strong for this world that no one could accept how different she was. It's a little different today, but the struggle continues for anybody who has undefined personal identity issues or questions. At least now we're talking about it. Back then, there was none of that. Yeah, she claims that she would have ended up an office worker who got married and had children and lived the life of all the women in Port Arthur, Texas, and she would have never, ever, ever, ever been happy in that lifestyle at all she was a performer to the core an artist to the core and that's what she needed to do for the rest of her life it's too bad that she didn't believe in herself and have the confidence that she needed because she had talent beyond what most people could ever have had she had a scotch more confidence we might have seen a different janice joplin in those later years Around this time, man, she started hanging out with a new friend of hers, platonic at first, Peggy Caserta. And I don't even think they were doing drugs together at first, but eventually they became fast friends. Uh, they did heroin together and other things together, and they are very graphically described. <laughs> By 2020, it was so funny to see uh, uh, Siegel, uh, who was the reporter, uh, talking about his days in Haight-Ashbury, and uh, Cynthia McFadden there going, well, back to you, John, you know, that <laughs> was so funny because we're talking about uh, the fact that Peggy and Janice were lovers and were open about it amongst their friends. It was no big deal to anybody, nor should it have been, right? But she also liked the boys. And that leads to a sad part of the story because of other people being uncomfortable with Janice and what she wanted on that final night of her life. Basically, ABC was saying nobody showed up for the threesome that she was trying to have between her fiance and her and Peggy, but Janice, and it kind of sent her over the edge or made it you know, possible for her to go over the edge and not come back, which is what happened that night, 1970. Yeah, she ended up uh, using heroin, injecting heroin, and died on the floor uh, by her bed. Now, apparently that weekend in L.A., the same person that she got her drugs from 
also sold drugs to a number of other people who overdosed, some of which also died. So it must have been what they call a hot batch in L.A. that weekend. And she got caught up in it. That leads the question, if one of the two people or both of the two people showed up, would she still be alive at that point? And would she have survived even longer? And if she did, questioning further, is it just delaying the inevitable? Or does the fact that she starts to get affirmation there and then the pearl sessions go well and then this thing goes well and that she starts to feel better about things and really does kick the heroin and live a long, healthy life? about that is the scooby-doo ending is uh garth and wayne would call i think the scooby-doo ending is pretty uh in some ways maybe accurate she may have given up heroin but do you think she would have ever given up her uh booze i don't know if she would have ever given up the alcohol. Oh, she loved her that's southern comfort man she always had a bottle of it handy right that's what they talk about yeah i think she took some big swigs from the bottle after she performed on Dick Cavett during a commercial break and the audience was like, whoa. And it, I think it was Dick Cavett, her final uh, interview, but I'm not 100% sure on that. We talked about her joining Big Brother and the holding company and they start working together and they go on a road trip to Chicago where the guy who brought them in can't pay them so they can't get home. Well, baby. They signed a record deal. So they have an album recorded in late 66 for Bob Shad at Mainstream. Along the way, they get an invite to be on stage for what will be a life-altering event for everyone in the band at the Monterey Pop Festival in June of 67. Some came along on the grand and it felt like a ball Tell me why 
time to talk about that on this episode about all the people who made the kind of impact that they did including Hendrix a friend of mine who was there said this was a night unlike any he'd ever experienced before or since so that's in June the album comes out in August and they're on their way even though the album isn't really the greatest the talent in the grooves cannot be denied But it's a lot more Big Brother than Janice than what we'll hear on the next record after all this stuff kicks in. Speaking of which, that's when Columbia steps in and says, hey, we're interested in this band. We think we can do something with them. And they obtain their contract from Mainstream and they get ready to make their first record full on for Columbia Records. It turns out to be cheap thrills. What an amazing time to be in the music business. And this band is right on the edge of making it as big as anybody. Production's better, arrangements are better, everybody's tighter, like you said. And for the cover, they get the great Robert Crumb. It's a classic cover, Cheap Thrills. You pointed out a couple of the great songs on this album. Combination of the two kicks it off and really is one of my favorite songs that wasn't a hit on the radio. One of my deep track faves, as soon as I heard it, I went, what's that? And I guess it's the way that they're screaming and hollering and whoa, whoa, yeah, you know what I mean? And I think they've been doing the song, I Need a Man to Love, but Janice really found the extra gear in the studio when she delivered the vocals on that pop. Oh, no, 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 
Summertime, Gershwin, always a favorite generation to generation now. And her take on it kind of made that a thing, you know? Like it's okay to like Gershwin, you know what I mean? Sounds good to me. And to side one, piece of my heart, legendary, still on classic rock radio all over the world. And it really highlighted the team of Burt Burns and Jerry Ragavoy writing that song and a couple others throughout the years. Inside 2 starts with Janice's Turtle Blues, a song she'd been singing around town for a long time. Oh Sweet Mary, and then the incendiary. Ball and Chain. All centers around that deep emotional pit and the feeling that it's all one big fucking day, man. Hard to swallow, but she makes it so sweet. But honestly, it's great to get into the pool and just swim a little bit when the music is so good and it's so delicious to listen. The songs you haven't heard in a long time, I've been doing a lot of that and discovering, continuing to discover music. Dude, I don't know how long we've been doing this episode so far, but I'm thirsty. I think we should take a pause for the cause, get a fresh set of bold foots and come back and do some good footing with Janice. As she goes solo. Thanks as always to Boldfoot Socks for sponsoring the podcast. And boy, oh boy, they've got some big doings and we've got Josh. Yeah, Josh ran a 100K race in the socks that he wore the year before. And they held up just as well the second time. And here's the man, Josh Law, on his latest adventure. The Ravapai 100 miler. All right, so we just hit mile 25 which means we are one-fourth of the way done. We just passed mile 40. Still feeling all right. Just crossed over the 80-mile barrier. Starting to get there. It's also starting to hurt a little bit. Let's go, Josh. Finish it out. Don't forget to go to boldfoot.com and check out the socks that they have. American grown, American sewn. And you know they're road tested by Josh himself. (laughs) They're your feet. Be bold. Ah, springtime, Marcus, and the warmer weather means the doors are going to be open. People are going to be drinking those crooked eye brews outside, enjoying the atmosphere of the warmer weather as the weather turns towards the beautiful part of spring. But between here and there, they're keeping it rocking inside, too, at Crooked Eye, right there in the heart of Hatboro. And we thank them for their support for about a million years now on the Imbalance History Podcast. With the weather getting nice, that means they're going to line up some really beautiful spring type of beers for you and I to enjoy when you sit outside and enjoy the weather at Crooked Eye. They also have cocktails. They have food. So much more. It is a great place to hang out. And the entertainment is ongoing every night. There's something going on, including my vinyl night, the second Tuesday of every month. Grab some friends. Come on around right there off of York Road in Montgomery. It's Crook and I Brewery, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Always a good time to be had and a new friend to be made. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. It's all about Janis Joplin on this episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast. Marcus and Ray hanging around. Well, it wasn't much longer that Janice would be hanging around with Big Brother and the Holding Company. She went solo as often happens, but her next step wasn't going to be invisible or quiet. It was going to be loud and it was going to be brash and it was going to be all 100% all about Janice, right? Yeah, Janice seemed to have some really good chemistry with Sam Andrew, and I think she really liked playing with him. I think they had a lot of trust, and with Janice, trust was very, very, very important. I also think that she wanted to be the center of attention, the star, too. End of the summer of 68, right after the release of Cheap Thrills, Janice tells the gang she's leaving. It'll be in the fall. And the main reason she gave was wanting to do solo music that had more of a soul music feel to it. And Sam Andrew planned to join her, also leaving Big Brother, in this as-yet-unnamed band. So she did her business. She was a pro. Did her tour through October and November of 68, ending on December 1st, back home in San Francisco. A benefit for Family Dog, which included Chet Helms and uh, some of the other people who've been involved with the band in the early years. Three weeks after that, Janice and Sam and their new band played in Memphis for the first time. The Cosmic Blues Band was born. Yeah, she was influenced by all aspects of soul and blues, and she really had a deep love for the soul and blues music of her time. Even though she was getting more respect after Cheap Thrills, I think the way that she was treated early on and the way a lot of women were treated in rock bands made her think, you know, I got momentum. I could be my own boss. I can do this. And there was no reason not to. Well, Janice and Sam started recruiting for this new band. They found keyboardist Steven Ryder, saxophone player Cornelius Snooky Flowers, who takes a turn on vocals. And Brad Campbell, who would stay with her on to Full Tilt Boogie, joined as the bassist. Brad, 
She also had a love for the China White, reportedly shooting $200 worth of heroin a day, the equivalent of like $1,500 today, maybe. That's a lot of heroin. It is. And the life, other than the drugs and the music, was kind of non-existent in a lot of ways and she was always on tour at that time going here going there and a, a lot of her friends and people around her her publicist myra friedman who later wrote a book about janice tried to tell her like the danger of traveling internationally with hard drugs what it could do to you what you could end up in the middle of i still can't believe she didn't get busted once mm. authorities just didn't give a shit because it was Janice. Now, you and I talked about a couple key TV appearances of this time. You watched the DeCavett interview, which is one of the best interviews she ever did. She was lucid. She made her points. She was funny. And she and Dick really had an affinity for each other. And you could tell that. Very nice to see you, my little songbird. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I always feel sort of funny because the last time you were here, you, I, you didn't find my shoes. I wore my hip jacket for you, however. You did? Yes, you did. <laughs> Are uh, you sure? <laughs> I, thought, I thought I did. Yes. Isn't this what all the guys are wearing? Uh, I never know. Uh, <laughs> no, not all of them. Not all of them, maybe. Say, you've got a group now, and naturally, as you can see, Janice is not on stage alone, and I never mention... Their, their name. name. Yeah, it's important. Name. It's sort of silly. It's I mean, called to slough them off Full like... Tilt Boogie. Full Tilt Boogie is the actual name of the group? Janis yeah. Joplin and... No, just Janis Joplin Full Tilt Boogie. One long word. Yeah. What does the title mean? Anything uh, hard what does to... does the title mean? It means yeah. boogie. Yeah. The, but where does the phrase Full Tilt Boogie come from? Is that from, a... A, from a friend of mine who walked into the dressing room one night and said, Is everybody ready for Full Tilt Boogie? Yeah? What if he'd yelled something horrible? Would you have called the group that? He yells a lot of horrible things, and we just picked that one. That's good. From amongst the many things he said. He had always spoken up about his concern for her, except one time he had said to her, you got to be careful. you got to slow down, Janice. You're going to die. And she responded with, who cares if I'm going to die? And he wanted to say, I do. The way she had responded had taken the wind out of his sails so badly that he just couldn't respond and say, I do care. I really care. July of 69, she performs Try Just a Little Bit Harder. And to love somebody, her take on that Bee Gees hit, 
And she made that song her own in so many different ways, live and in the studio. I love her voice and what she did to that song with it. In my brain. Yeah, her voice is so powerful throughout her career. And not just like loud powerful or strong powerful, but emotionally powerful. You feel every bit of her emotion when she sings. Not everybody was buying in here at the beginning of the Cosmic Blues Band. A lot of the critics were starting to give her the go back to the Big Brother noise even before everything was done. And this is part of the disrespect that she was given in the music business at a time where chauvinism, despite everybody's enlightened view in the 60s, was still a big part of things for women, especially. But I guess ultimately from this, Marcus, the lasting tracks, the enduring songs on classic rock radio or playlists of Janis Joplin fans, are the opener try just a little bit harder? she had them cosmic blues again mama but she also was smart enough to bring in people like mike bloomfield to fill in some parts and other studio guys like goldie mcjohn to help make sure that it was a full sounding record good stuff in one of those classic labeling full pause it went out with virtually nothing on the cover but janice's face and eventually they commissioned our crumb to do a little sticker like hey everybody this is janice tablet and cosmic blues and all that right and after that and some airplay it actually started to sell and that was really making her feel like she'd made the right move what were the songs that were getting play on the radio from this record at that time do you remember 
Try Just a Little Bit Harder was the big hit, but I suspect that FM radio, AOR underground radio at the time, was playing all the songs. All of it was pretty cool. There's a lot of stories told about Janice's role in her time spent at the Woodstock Arts Festival in 1969, Marcus. Um, There is footage of her and Peggy. Famously, they put it into the 2020 piece we keep talking about, of them walking across a field once they first got there. They did drugs. And then they were delayed because the whole thing was running a little behind. And then she and I think Peggy, too, got so whacked out that they had to delay her even further, putting her on at 2 o'clock in the morning. And by then she had drank a little bit as well. Reviewing it for this podcast, I realized, yeah, she was really in the bag, man. She wasn't just like feeling it and being cool and groovy. She was really whacked. But still, most people who were there call it one of the highlights. It was raw and powerful and perfect for that historic weekend, right? Oh, yeah. The live performances that I have seen since then, because I was too little to experience it, or my parents would have never even thought twice about showing up at Woodstock. Nobody experienced it unless they were there for a long time until the album and then the film came out and then... I mean, I was like almost old enough to run away and get in total trouble for doing it. But nobody my age or even a little older was really thinking to get there. It was the older kids, those damn hippies. (laughs) (laughs) From 2 to 3 a.m., she played Sunday morning. Actually, it was Saturday night into Sunday morning between Credence and Sly and the Family Stone. What a night, right? You're up tripping your tits off Saturday night at Woodstock. CCR, Janice Joplin, Sly and the family fucking stone. Man, I'm going to heaven right now. (laughs) We're going to need to do some more digging in to follow up on just why, unless you know. Um, When she switched gears from the Cosmic Blues Band to the Full Tilt Boogie Band, and the change in personnel was almost full. Guitarist John Till was already playing uh, with the guys in this band, Richard Bell and Clark Pearson and Ken Pearson, not brothers and spelled differently. And Brad Campbell, who we talked about, was in the Cosmic Blues Band, joins Janice with this new band of Canadian rockers, eh? One of the things we failed to mention is that somewhere along the line, the guy that wouldn't let them film the band at uh, the concert at Monterey got fired. And Albert Grossman, who was Dylan's guy, came in 
and became their manager trying to help them to get this thing on track. And that's kind of when she goes solo and he's trying to figure the whole thing out. And at the same time, she's struggling with her own demons and her own addictions. They do start recording, Marcus, but then they hit the road in May of 1970. And then they went on a tour that became famous most recently in the last several years as a movie. The Festival Express Tour made its way through Canada with a great lineup, including Janice and her band, The Grateful Dead, Delaney and Bonnie, Rick Danko and the band, Eric Anderson and Ian and Sylvia. And they all got on the train, right? You've seen it, at least part of it. And they go and play these three, four gigs. I think there was two gigs in Toronto. Uh, across Canada and the experiences of being on the train and being together as artists and kind of a cool thing, a great idea. I think it might have been better executed, but it was really cool and they were in the middle of it. And that's the kind of thing they were looking to do as they move forward with Janice as a solo artist. They actually played in Toronto, Winnipeg, and Calgary were the three locations that they played in. This is one of those low-key tours that was special in so many ways for these bands. You have to watch the documentary to see why it was special, but it was unique and it was very cool that they did something like this in a time when there wasn't a lot of freedom for hippie-ish bands to be able to do this type of stuff. They were always under extra scrutiny because everybody knew they partied and did drugs. The last time the Full Tilt Boogie Band took the stage August 12th, 1970, Harvard Stadium in Boston, Massachusetts. The thing is, a couple or three fans recorded the show, and later, years later, somebody pieced together all the bootleg tapes for one bootleg called Wicked Woman. And what it does is capture the energy of that final performance live of Janis Joplin in front of 40,000 people at Harvard Stadium in Boston, August 12, 1970, and her time is running out. I'm so glad that you sent me that link because it was really cool hearing the production of all of those different recordings put together because even though it doesn't have that, like, Frampton Comes Alive quality or anything like that, you can still feel her vocals and you can still feel the music in the recording. So a normal break in touring to go back to the studio to start making the next record is kind of where we are in the story here. It's what happens when they get back to L.A. and the next six weeks become a slow descent, really. And I think a lot of the people around her that weren't directly in her circle were worried about it. You mentioned Cavett. There were others who were vocal. And I guess everybody felt a little funny to be telling somebody how to do their business. Back in L.A., they're at work on what will be the Pearl Sessions. And there was a lot of music that was recorded at that time. They came out in box set versions and expanded versions. And it's a legendary time in rock and roll because of the music that was being made. But behind the scenes, tears of a clown, right? Very much so. She was very unhappy. She was very lonely, I think, mm -hmm. and definitely struggling with 
both heroin and alcohol and in love and love, of course, too. But so many people in the entertainment industry wear that clown face because in this business, it's hard to trust people. You never know who's got your back or who's going to stab you in the back. And when you're an artist and your belief is in that pure art form and you expect to be respected and paid honorably for your art and you get totally fucked, it causes a lot of problems. It impacts the artist's mental health without a doubt. It impacts their physical health and it has an impact on their performance as well. I think that's a part of the industry that people seem to overlook and forget way too often. Today is a lot different than things were in 1968, 69, and 70, but we ain't done yet. There's still far to go as far as the way we treat each other and stuff. And the music business has got its own problems, right? And back then, they certainly did. Yes. Now, her relationship with Peggy Caserta at this point was ongoing. At a time when you'd think that the sexual revolution and the summer of love would have made her physical loving of her friend Peggy okay in the world, they still kept it hidden. After the false start with uh, the fella in Texas, she hooks up with Seth Morgan and quickly they become fiancés. And I don't know if it was just her idea of how to celebrate her engagement, but she suggested that she and Seth and Peggy have a threesome, and they both initially agreed to it. So that becomes the plan. They're going to meet her after her studio sessions at the Landmark Hotel, and then they're all going to hang out and hook up, right? It didn't go that way, did it? Not at all. Neither of her friends showed up. Now, you can imagine little girl Blue feeling down. Neither her fiancé, who she thought she was going to build a life with, or her best friend and lover, Peggy, showed up. She felt abandoned. And the weird irony is that both Peggy and Seth thought the other one was there and that everything was fine. The next day, she didn't show up to the studio. John Cook had to find her in her room, on the floor, gone. It was a heroin overdose, although somebody said she also hit her head and it could have been that as well. Didn't matter. Tom Noguchi's a pretty well-known coroner, and he ruled it accidental death because of the drugs in her system. Sad tale. So she had died before even completing the entire album that would become Pearl. This is true, but it was pretty close. And one of the songs, Nick Gravenitas's Buried Alive in the Blues, was one of the tracks where the vocals weren't done. And they decided to close side one of what became Pearl with an instrumental take of that in tribute to the voice that should have been there. And if you don't think they were on fire in that studio, you go listen to that album from the opening beats of Move Over. That song kicks ass. Oh, yes, it does. Maybe. 
And even if you only like it because of its role in Look Who's Talking, the movie Cry Baby is one of those great screaming spiritual type songs. Oh, don't push. Hey, stop with the pushing already. Hey, I'm fine. Oh, And one of my favorite songs, All Pearl, Half Moon, I didn't realize was written by John and Joanna Hall. John Hall would go on to join Orleans. Remember the song, Still the One? Yep. And then he would become a politician and environmentalist and an activist in Ulster County, New York. Well, together they wrote that song Half Moon, so I suspect they got a few checks from that as well. And then, as we mentioned, Buried Alive in the Blues to close side one. Yeah. Half Moon is maybe my favorite song on this record. There's a happiness in her voice that was very rare, a deep down-in happiness that I feel like you didn't hear it in some of the other songs. You felt the pain and you felt the anguish and you felt the hurt in the other songs. But in Half Moon, you could totally vibe off of her happiness in that song. And it really moved me a lot re-listening to this record. On side two, you find me and Bobby McGee. And when I saw Chris Christopherson talking to the reporters from ABC for that 2020 piece that we referenced earlier in the podcast, he loved her. Yeah, they were lovers, but that wasn't an exclusive club for Janice, right? But you can tell by the way he's talking about it. He had deep affection for her. Her flip of the genders made it one of her most enduring songs, as well as the next song, Mercedes Benz, which she wrote with a couple friends on a whim. My guess is that song wasn't anywhere near being complete. There's got to be a demo version of it somewhere. The performance that she did of that song on that Wicked Woman bootleg is the same as in the studio. Except for one thing. I think it's how she really wanted it. Everybody singing and clapping along. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends don't drive Porsches. I'm not saying amen. Oh, Lord, oh, 
And there she is with 40,000 people clapping along to Mercedes Benz instead of just her and a couple guys in the studio. That was what I think she was going for. One of those little peeks into the future. And very gospel-y, too. You could hear the gospel influence in that song. Bobby Womack's Trust Me is in there after Mercedes Benz. And then appropriately, if you listen to the words and you feel the music, Jerry Ragavoy and Mort Schumann's Get It While You Can to close the album out. Just so much great music, and it was all in progress with Paul Rothschild for the first time and comes out in January. All I know is when I was going to my cousin's house on Monday nights in Croydon and listening to music, we listened to Pearl both sides every night for weeks and weeks. It's one of those things you never really get over, Marcus. That's true. The loss of a musician that you love dearly impacts you hard because those songs speak to you and they connect to you. So when that person passes away, you feel like a part of you has died as well. There was a time between September of 1970 and July of 1971 We lost Jimmy. We lost Alan Wilson of Canned Heat. We lost Janice. We lost Jim. In that stretch, we lost the master maestro, the bard poet, and the empress, queen of our times. And when I want to really get down in the blues, Marcus, I stop and think about where they'd all be today. Problem was, we all thought, they all thought, that they'd live forever. That shit's been going through my head the last couple days while I've been listening to all these amazing albums that she released posthumously, most of them. (laughs) And the one that really has grabbed me is that 1968 Winterland show. It was recorded over a couple nights in April 68, but didn't see the light of day till over 30 years later. How about that? After listening to it, it's become one of my favorites. It's good that we can smile. It's good that we can laugh. It's good that we have the music to make our days brighter. Thanks, Janice, and all the other people um, that really worked hard. They had to work a lot harder then to make music. All the personal stuff aside, if it was working, she was working with it. But if it wasn't working, 
she was changing it up and that she did. She may have done more to help women in their place to change. Instead of being in their place, women started to make their own place. It's one of the things that we have to thank her for. And I guess you got to thank Bessie too, because Bessie was a big influence. Bessie Smith, big influence on the great Janice Joplin. It's one of those stories, I think, Marcus, where we always hope that it'll end on a happier note, but it never does. But it is the imbalanced history of rock and roll, all about Janice Joplin, one we've been looking forward to doing for a long time. And you may have some input, some feedback, and maybe some things that we missed along the way. Feel free to let us know about it on our email, imbalancehistory at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on social media via the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can hit our website, imbalancehistory.com as well, and leave a comment there too. Also, all the episodes are right there. Check them out anytime you want, on demand. That's the idea of podcasting. We're on the Pantheon Podcast Network, a Dark Doc Media production. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. Until the next time we get together to talk about something fun and cool in rock and roll, this is the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.